to be back with you tonight and it's my privilege to introduce to you an exciting new uh, sermon series that that we've been praying uh, over quite a while ago as an eldership team and we trust God for something to happen in our church Um, we are very expectant because we feel that God is about to do something great and uh, this series is called undignified so you'll see there on the top oh that's my beautiful wife with my baby girl Abigail my heart just melts when I see them. But the, the topic of this uh, sermon series is called Undignified. Who can tell me what that word means? Who's got a guess? Big words in church. Feels like university. It means appearing foolish, unseemingly, or lacking in dignity. So whom of you are excited about that? Losing your dignity. <laughs> It doesn't seem to be something to be looking forward to, eh? But um, the objective of this series is that we, will, uh, we want to encourage the church, us as church, into a lifestyle of undignified worship. In other words, where we make ourselves undignified before the Lord. Where we are willing to lose our dignity for the sake of, of the Lord because He is really worth it. And all of this is a response to a revelation of who God is. If we really understand who God is, if we have a clear revelation of who God is, then we can make ourselves undignified before Him. But then we need to have an authentic relationship with Him. This cannot happen outside of a relationship with God, or else it's called religion. And it cannot be linked to our circumstances. Because then God is not always God. Amen? So what we're going to do is we're going to use scriptures from the book of Samuel and pairing it up with some suitable psalms and Afrikaans psalms. And we're going to look at the life of David and how he modeled to us this lifestyle of authentic or undignified worship in all circumstances coming from his relationship with God. So I'm just picking up some form of feed here. Um, so we're going to look at David's life and, and get an inspiration from that to see, okay, how does he model that to us and how can we also live um, that in our relationship with God. But tonight we're going to start with a topic that will be called reverent worship. So again, another big word in church, reverence. Have you heard about the, the, the word reverence? Okay. Irreverence. Yay, nay. Are you here tonight? Anybody here? Okay, thanks. Okay, so we're going to see how David brought back the ark of God and how he acted with ignorance. And then he had a revelation of God that humbled him to a place where it led him to a reverent worship or else he would face calamity. So we're going to see a bit of a disaster happening here tonight. And as Christians, we can be sometimes very sincere in our motives, assuming that our worship is acceptable to God. 
And just like David, we are ignorant maybe of the way that God prefers that or what God really desires. And then we would say, but I'm sincere in my worship. And we think that our sincerity is enough. And then we justify even our unscriptural ways of, of worshiping. Uh, so we can be very sincere with God. Whom of you are here because you are sincerely here tonight? There's only me, two guys. We are two people being sincere with God. Come on. Okay, you're either sincere or you're not sincere, okay? But you know what? You can be sincerely wrong. Have you ever thought about the idea of you as a Christian and your idea about Christianity and worship can be sincerely wrong? It's an uncomfortable thought. Now, my job with the introduction of the series is to help us to see how much sincerely wrong we can be. Okay, so that's going to be my job. And I hope by the end of the evening, you are challenged enough about your sincerity to make sure that you're not sincerely wrong in your worship to God. Amen. So we're going to start. Round number one. Uh, we're going to look at the book of 2 Samuel 6, um, and, and we're going to jump into that verse, verse 1. Sorry, but there's still a feet. Can we see if we can change that before we ca carry on? All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful evening. and Every person that has raised their hands now saying that they are sincerely here to just worship you, to be in your presence, Lord. And, and tonight we all assume that we are sincere before you. But I pray, Lord, that, that in Scripture we will clearly see um, learning from what David has done and finding ourselves, Lord, and evaluating our hearts before you. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will now come and settle things in our heart and help us and lead us to get to a conviction in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let's start. David, again, brought together all the able young men of Israel. 30,000. Quite a big gathering, hey? 30,000 people, and they went um, with all these men to a, a town called Baala, or in another translation, Kiriath Jeharam. It's a place in Judah, in the region of Judah. Uh, to bring up the Ark of God, which is called by the name, capital letter, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark. Okay, here's the mission. Let's bring back the Ark of the Lord. Now, David said here that he talked to the people in 1 Chronicles 13. He says, let's bring back the Ark. And he says, because... We did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. So let's pause for a moment. The first king of Israel was not David, but Saul. And Saul, in his entire reign as a king, never had the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem or in the place that he was reigning from. Shocking. Would you think? Moses was the leader that in his time, God says, built the tabernacle and here's the Ark of Covenant. And that's where my glory will be. That's where my presence will be. Surely you would think if you are the first assigned king, first appointed king, you're going to make sure you get the Ark there. Somehow Saul didn't think it was important. It shows you something about his leadership. It's almost like, no, I think I can do it. I don't really need that. While David from the start, had this desire to get the ark back. 
and we're going to look at that. So from, from my side, I thought to, me, to myself, okay, that, that seems like a good idea. The, all the people said they agreed to it because the Bible says they see, it seems right to them. It seems right to me. What do you think? Does it seem right to you? It's a good idea. Let's bring back the ark. <laughs> it's a great idea. In fact, it's a God idea. I mean, God said, build the ark, have it with you. That's my present. So this is not just a good idea, it's a great idea, it's a God idea. So David is now assigned to this God idea, let's get the, the ark back. And he starts off, and the Bible says, they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. So that's where the ark was positioned. And the two sons of Abinadab, Uzzah and Ahu, were guiding the new cart of the ark, uh, with the ark on it. Ayua was walking in the front. I don't know why that was important. I guess the other one was walking at the back. Um, but what we see here, David is immediately doing something. He says, when we get the ark back, we're just not just going to take it back. We're going to put it on a brand new cart. If he talks about the cart, he talks about an oxen cart. So we see two oxen and then this cart, pulling this cart. Now, you know, they could use any cart. But the fact that they're saying, let's, let's get a new cart. You know, I can just imagine someone would sponsor it to say, here's the money for the new cart. Okay. You know, that big um, church moments at the, um, at the Kermis, you know, where, where the people would come and they, they sponsor all these things. And they say, yes, the, boo the farmers will come and say, yes, some, some animals that you can use. So surely there was people that say, you can use my oxen for this wonderful ceremony, and they might have decorated the whole thing, I don't know, but it was a brand new cart. It, it shows you something of David saying, I'm not going to use an ordinary cart that we've been using all along. I want something new here. Why? I want only the best. Only the best for the presence of God. And here they go. They're going downhill. But let's think for a moment, why is there such a fuss about getting the ark back? What? What is the excitement all about? What is the significance about the Ark? So the Ark of Covenant is also um, um, referred to as the Ark of Testimony. And it's the most sacred relic in the Israelites' um, history. It's basically a wooden chest that's covered in pure gold with a very elaborate uh, decorated lid. And on it is uh, these, uh, you can see the, the image of these uh, angel wings that covers the the lid of the ark. And then inside of the ark were placed the two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments. Now that wasn't the ones Moses wrote down because Moses broke it. Remember, he threw it down because the people were sinning. God himself wrote on these stone tablets and that's put inside there. So there's a testimony of the law. But there's also the, um, the rot of uh, Aaron and the miracle is that that rot was blossoming inside the ark, not being planted in the soil. That means in the presence of God, everything is blossoming. And then there was this pot of manna. So remember, the manna was the food that they ate in the desert. And if you don't eat the manna today, tomorrow it's rotten. But in the ark, there was this pot of manna, and it was stained in the presence of God. And it testifies to them that God is with them. So here's the thing about the ark. Significant thing is that Moses experienced God speaking to him from that seat, that mercy seat, that lid. So it was placed in the most holy place in the tabernacle. That was quite a dark little room. 
with all the tent coverings. There was no light coming in there. And only the high priest could enter that space once a year. But God's glory, God's presence would manifest in such a way that there was this thick cloud of the glory of God resting upon that tabernacle. And then it was a bright light shining, illuminating that whole place as God's presence is shining on that, on that lid, on the mercy seat. So that's the place where God was speaking from. And here's the thing, when they had the Ark of Covenant with them, they were successful in the battles. When they'd crossed the Jordan River, the priest carried the Ark, and when they put their foot in the water, the water parted because God was with them. So it's quite significant and important. I would think if I'm a king, I want the Ark of Covenant with me because we're going to go into battle, and I want to make sure we're going to win. So it symbolizes the presence of God, and David knew we cannot be a kingdom without the presence of God. He desired that. So <clears throat> they carry the, the ark on the oxen cart, and the word says in verse 5, David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord. Okay, now I want to challenge you, young people, who's got any might here? <laughs> There's so three people here with some might. Okay, this morning... I, I asked uh, a little bit of an older generation. I got a little bit more of a mite there. Some of the, them are nearing 50 or 60 or 70. I wonder how much mite they still have. But I could see some volunteers. Tonight I see a bunch of 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds. Do I have some people with mites here? Okay, so yay, come on, that sounds better. So David and all the people were celebrating with all their might, with castanets, harps, lyres, tim timbrels, Systems and symbols, beautiful variety of instruments that they were um, praising God with. And they started off with this, with this beautiful um, song. So I would say, this is my interpretation of David leading them in, in worship. Eh? So here we go. Do you have might? Are you going to join me? So it's like, in the presence of your people, I will praise your name. For alone you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Let us celebrate your goodness and your steadfast love. May your name be exalted here on earth and in heaven above. Am I the only one dancing? Lie, 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 woo! Hang on, hang on. Maybe he didn't play the, the tambourine. Maybe he was playing the cymbals. Can you imagine the ark of God coming back to Israel and the cheer of the people? And then suddenly, bang, he turns around. And there's a dead body on the floor. <laughs> One of the sons of Abinadab lies dead on the floor next to the ark. He's a young person. It could be one of you tonight. You could have been one of the sons of Abinadab in that joyful praise, dead. Why? What's going on here? What's happening here? How can someone die because we're praising God? 
quite a dangerous thing we're doing here. So the word says, when they came to the threshing floor, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark to steady the ark. Why? Because the oxen stumbled. I would think it's quite a logical thing. If oxen stumble and the, the cart becomes unstable, I don't want the, the ark of covenant to fall on the, on the ground. What about you? What would you think? Just a natural thing. I would, I would grab that ark and say, I don't want this to be contaminated. It seems like a reverent act. It seems like something that's, that's sincere. Don't you think it's a sincere act? We want to protect the ark of God. And he reached out his hand. And the Bible says the Lord's anger burnt against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. God struck him down and he died before God beside the ark. And David was angry because of the, Lord, the Lord's wrath. And he called this place Perez Uzzah. And it means breaking out against Uzzah. So every time they passed that place, they would say, this is the place where God broke out against Uzzah. It's an uncomfortable place to be at. Let's move on from this place. Because at this place now, it's, it's a difficult space to be in. Because we've got the Ark of Covenant, which is the living presence of the living God we want to get back. But we've got a dead body here. There's now two things to carry how can you rejoice and mourn at the same time? But here's the thing. It's an element of the gospel that's been preached here. Because it's the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man that results in death. And they're stuck in that story between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And with the best sincere intention of worshiping God, someone is dying. David warns us in, in Psalm 2. He writes there in verse 10. First, he, he has a revelation, and I think it was a prophetic image of Jesus, the Son of God. He says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. I think um, Andre shared earlier tonight, you heard the Holy Spirit saying, you, are, you belong. Uh, you are my son. That's the Holy Spirit's working of God speaking to us. But then he says, therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. What attention tonight at the prayer meeting we prayed about the, the mountain of fear and the mountain of joy. And how can you be in those two spaces at the same time? And then he goes on and says, kiss the son or he will be angry. And his wrath can flare up in a moment. David had a wisdom. He, he had an experience here. And he's now warning us to say, you better have a respect for the Son of God. You better have a respect for God. You know, but you know what? I would have thought he should have known better because that was not the first time that that happened. Did you know? So first of all, the ark was taken way before David came on the scene. At the time of Eli, the priest, the Philistines came and they captured the ark and they got it with him. And they thought, if we have that thing with us, we're going to have the same blessing that Israel have. But the opposite happened because they were not God's chosen people. So they had the Ark of Covenant, but instead of having the blessing, God sent a plague upon them. And they were plagued by a plague of rats. Whom of you have got a grill and a thing for a rat? Okay? 
but not just rats, tumors. There was a tumor outbreak. People started to get cancer, tumors. And the five cities of, um, of the Philistines were all affected, and they started to pass on the ark from the one to the other, saying, I don't want this, maybe it's going to work with you. And eventually they got a point saying, no, 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 this is not working for us. Let's send it back to where it comes from. But let, we're not sure if it's their God, the Israelites, who's did it to us, or maybe it wasn't a coincidence. What should we do? And then they decided they made five golden rats to symbolize the plague of rats for the five cities. And then some tumors, golden tumors, that would represent these tumors. They put it in a chest. They put it on the ark, on the um, cart, along with the ark, on, uh, with the two oxen. Then they said, we're going to send these oxen away. If they go by themselves to the Israelites, then we know it's that God who did it to us. If these oxen just go somewhere else, then we know it was just a coincidence. And unguided, they sent this oxen cart, and then the beautiful thing is these, oxen, uh, these two oxen went straight back to Israel by themselves. How amazing is that? They were guided by God. And then the people of this town called Beth Shemesh were busy harvesting in the field, and they saw the ark coming from a distance. And they started to rejoice because God himself is bringing back the ark to them. How amazing is that? There's no person around that ark, and two oxen is faithfully coming to Israel saying, here's the presence of God, let's bring it back. Can we give God a hand for that? And, but on that day, 70 people died. Why? Because, maybe like us, they were curious. They've heard about the ark, but they haven't seen it for a number of years. Suddenly it's there, and they were like, do you want to look? Do you want to look? And they opened up the ark to look what's inside. Seventy of them died. Didn't David know about it? Surely he should have paid attention to that. Now again, as he worshipped God, the same thing happens. And it sounds, the people they mourned, they said, but how can we stand in the presence of such a holy God? And it sounds like what David is saying in Psalm 24. He says, who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He goes on to say, it's those who seek the Lord. Uh, they will receive a blessing, etc., etc." But it's an important question, contemplating like, but who can actually then stand in the presence of God or remain standing? And the Bible says, first of all, he was angry with Uzzah on the floor, but he was also afraid of the Lord that day. And he asked this question, he says, how can I ever bring the ark back to you? In other words, how can I ever get the presence of God back to our kingdom? Sometimes I look at our nation and how corrupt things are, and I wonder to myself, how can we ever get the presence of God back into our country on that level? We ask this question, how can we ever, how can I ever please God? Maybe you have something that you desire for God to do in your life, and maybe you've prayed about it, and, and it just doesn't seem to work out, and you get to a point where you say, how can I ever? My, my objective is to stay close to God, but yet I, I'm sinning again. I'm trapped into the busyness of life, the studies, social life relationships. It's just catching on on me. I don't get to my objective of being intimate with God. But you know, being angry and afraid is actually another word to say he was upset with God. Amen? But here's the thing. My question to us tonight is when you get upset with God 
or with any person, do you tell them? Do you show it to them? Or do you just put up a face and say, no, everything is fine, thank you. But in your heart, you're really upset. What does it say about that relationship? I mean, in my marriage, if I'm upset with my wife, or she's upset with me, and we don't talk about it, and we don't clear it up, what does it say about our connection? We can all put the face up and say, no, it's all fine, it's all fine, but deep in our heart, we've got this deep resentment. How can we then be intimate and have an intimate relationship with one another? doesn't make sense, eh? So, but I would think, like many of us, have this thing that, oh, I cannot be afraid, I cannot be angry to God. Yet God says, come speak to me, come talk to me, come with your emotions, let's talk about it. I would think this is the point where you're going to die, if you are honest enough about your emotions. Why don't you think that? Many of us grew up in a house that you're not allowed to speak about your emotions, or to show it. You're just supposed to be happy and smiling all the time, as long as nothing bad happens, because then no one can handle that in the house. David is demonstrating to us a loving relationship with God. He's angry at God. He's upset. I mentioned it before, but three years ago, on the day before my birthday, my, my dad passed away. And there are times when I think about it and by the grace of God, then I'm okay. It, it, it doesn't bother me and doesn't have that great effect. But then there's times when I think about it and I really get upset about it. This year particularly, it affects me the most so far. And you get to a place where you're actually upset about it. I think to myself, yo, but the timing, couldn't he die on another day? You know? Didn't the Lord know that the next day is my birthday? How can you wake up the next day? Yesterday you were crying, today you're going to do what? You're going to do a dance or what? That's my reality. So I've got a reason to be upset, but what about you? Maybe you've lost a job, or maybe your parents have lost a job, or uh, lack of income, or maybe you've got a health issue. There can be various reasons why we are upset with God. David was quite upset. In fact, he stopped the whole idea of getting the ark back, and he parked the ark in someone's home. The guy's name was Obed-Edom. It's like, where's the closest house here? Just put it there. All right. That's David acting out of fear. So this is mission failed. They didn't bring the ark back. But here's the thing. David had the right expression of praise and worship, wouldn't you, won't you, won't you say? I mean, we had a glorious dance going here. I felt the energy, I felt the excitement and the praise and the joy. He had the music, he had the instruments, he had everything going that we would think is so important for a worship service. I stand here tonight and I think about our band and I, I thought about who's in this place here that can also play musical instruments. I would love to see more people come, more young people coming to the front. Worth that. But yet he was unsuccessful in bringing the presence of God back to Jerusalem. Why? So we don't have that answer now. And then round number two. 2 Samuel 6 continue. Now the king was told that the house of obed Indom was blessed because the ark was there. So maybe that was the reason. He thought, mm -hmm, no, no, it's okay, leave it there. I'm too afraid. Mm, the blessing, oh, we want it back. I don't know what motivated him. But in 1 Chronicles 15, we see that David has constructed some buildings and he, and he pitched a tent. He says, let's prepare a place for this ark so that once it's here, there's a place for it. Seems like he prepared himself to bring it back. And then he assembled all Israel in Jerusalem 
to bring back the ark again. Again, quite a big gathering. I would think if I'm the leader and someone died on my account when I led the worship, the second time I'm going to go alone. Like if someone dies, let it be me and not someone else on my account. Won't you think? Will you gamble with another 30,000 people if you know already someone died on your account, on your watch? And there we go again. David went back to bring the ark from the Lord with rejoicing. Okay, are we ready? In the praise. Come on, people. Okay, so you would ask yourself, why, David, would you do it again if, if someone died? I would think, who's going to die next? I mean, it's the same people. I'm like, David, are you sure you're doing the right thing here? Here's my question to us tonight. If things doesn't work out the way that you have in your heart, do you still praise God with the same enthusiasm and conviction and passion as you would before? Because that's what David did. They rejoiced again with all their might. Even if something didn't work out the previous time. This time they, there were shouts and there were sounds of trumpets. It seems like this, the, the, the noise just um, elevated. And the Bible actually said the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David. Mission accomplished. Hooray. Yay. <laughs> okay. Great. Okay. I think I'm throwing you off a bit tonight. But here's the thing. He had the same expressions of worship, same song, same dance, same musical instruments. Nothing changed there. They were praising God with all their might. Yet this time they were successful in bringing back the ark. Why? What's the difference? Was it because they uh, sang louder? Maybe, maybe they made a bigger noise. Maybe there was the trumpets. Was it that? And that sometimes as Christians, we get stuck into that space where we say, how was the worship tonight? Oh, it was great. You know, Talia was leading. No, it wasn't great. They sang too much Afrikaans songs. No, they sing too, too slow. They sing too fast. They clap too much hands. They don't clap. They raise their hands. They are too stiff, these people. They dance too much. They irritate me. They, this, we have got this criteria list that we measure worship, and we measure a worship service according to that. We get stuck into that things about the, the expressions of praise, and we judge one another. Oh, you are bowing down. What are, what are people going to think if I start to dance around here? We get, we get bogged down with the expressions of praise and yet missing the presence of God altogether. But he has two things that David did the second round, and that's where we're going to end. In 1 Chronicles 15, it gives us the answer. First of all, this time, the second time, David acted with reverence, in other words, with a respect to the blood covenant. Bible says those who were carrying the ark, when they took six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Now, it can either mean when they took the first six steps, like one, two, three, four, five, six, from there to here, sacrifice a bull. It might be once off. Some, some commentaries say it might be the whole 15 kilometers from that town to Jerusalem. It's like 30,000 uh, steps. Divide that into six. Gives you about 5,000 times sacrificing. 
It's not too far off. Solomon, when he dedicated the tem temple, uh, sacrificed 22,000 animals. So whether it was 10,000 animals or whether it was just a few, that's not the point. The point is that there was blood flowing this time. There's the sacrificial blood of the lamb that was flowing, that was atoning for someone else to prevent someone else from dying. It's the same Genesis story of Adam and Eve, and God says, let me rather slaughter an animal so that you can stay alive. It's the same gospel story that points to Jesus Christ that says, only through the blood of Jesus can we have a relationship with the Father. Only because the blood of Christ was sprinkled in your heart can you stand tonight and I can be silly tonight with my tambourine and I can praise God without any fear of dying here. Why can I stand and be not afraid of dying in God's presence? Because Jesus was dying on my behalf. You see, David suddenly had an understanding that we need to get back to the blood covenant. Jesus says, no one can come to the Father unless through me. The word of God says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Without the, the blood, we are still separated from a holy God. And the, the message of the Old Testament is still, stay away, stay away. You're unholy, you're unholy. But when the blood flows, God says, come into my presence. You are atoned for. And then secondly, what David did here, he acted with obedience to the Lord's commandments. So interestingly, this time he called the Levites and he said to them, he said to everybody, no one except the Levites may carry the ark of the Lord because God chose them to carry the ark. And then he speaks to them, he says, it was because you didn't do it the first time that someone died. And he was quite right. And he made this point, he says, 1, Corinthians, or 1 Chronicles 15, verse 13, he says, We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. In other words, we had a great idea. Let's bring back the ark. We had a God idea. Let's bring back the ark of God. But we forgot to inquire of God, to say, God, how do you want us to do this? Do you think that the details of your life is important to God? Or do you just assume I've got the right idea and I've got the right desire and the right motive, so surely God must understand the way I do it? Or can we go back and where did David get this clarity from, inquiring of the Lord? Surely the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. But it was written down in Scripture, so he had to go back and think, why did it work when Moses carried the ark? Why didn't people die then? Why do they die on my account? And going back to the scriptures in Deuteronomy, you would see that God clearly said, everything else in the tabernacle can be put on an oxen cart. But these articles can only be carried on the shoulders of the Levites. It was a commandment. The first time he was just ignorant about breaking a commandment, and that's why it didn't work out. How many times are we doing things from a place of ignorance and then we wonder why it doesn't work out? Because we don't inquire of the Lord of how it should be done. So I want to end with these two questions. Then, so if we have to break down worship, the two words I want to compare it to is either ir irreverent worship or reverent worship. So what is then an irreverent worship? Because that's what I see in the story. 
irreverent worship is still expressing praise and worship in music, songs, and dance, and all these things with sincerity, but it is based on ignorance and assumption. Ignorance because it ignores the fact that the holiness of God demands our death because of our sin. Ignorance because it ignores the blood sacrifice of the animals in the Old Testament, and for us, the blood of Jesus. Thinking we can just come into a church and sing songs and God would accept it, apart from the blood of Christ being sprinkled on our hearts. It's based on assumption because we assume our good works is good enough to please God, to sustain a relationship with God. God will be impressed with my good works and he's going to eliminate my bad stuff with all the good stuff in his books. Assuming that we don't have to rely on Jesus. Assuming that if we have sincere motives, it's good enough, it can justify our unscriptural ways of, of even worshiping God. Oh, I don't need to do that. That's for the silly people in the church. I don't need to raise my hand. I don't feel like it. It doesn't fit into my frame of worship. What is reverent worship? It's still expressing praise and worship through prayer, through music, through dance, all these expressions with the same sincerity, but this time it's based on faith and obedience. Faith in Christ, faith in the blood, faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And obedience to the Lord. In other words, inquiring of the Lord. How should it be done? Worshipping God at university, in your classroom, in your, in your apartment where you stay, with your friends, at church, in your connect group, in your family. Worshipping God in every space of your life and figuring out with God, Lord, how do you want it to look in my life? How shall I praise you? How shall I bring the presence of God into all the aspects of my life? And be God-honoring and praise you in the way that you want to be praised. Let's close our eyes. I would like us to, tonight just to reflect. If you think about this story of David and the way that he, first of all, made a big mistake. Where he made a lot of assumptions and he was ignorant. And it cost someone his life. And the second time we where he was moved by the scriptures to be obedient to the Lord and to, to be mindful again of the blood covenant. I want to ask you, how does your worship look like? How does your definition of worship look like? Do you think worship for you is every Sunday evening between 6 and 7? Do you only worship God when there's a band leading you? Can you worship God on campus? Can you worship God in your room? Can you worship God around the family table? Can you worship God in the office? Can you give Him praise? And is your life a worship to God? And is it, is it done in such a way that it's really pleasing to God? Because it's done in the prescribed way. Do you have a conviction of how God should be praised? according to scriptures? Or do you praise God or do you come to church with the idea I'm going to praise God according to what I think is right and what I feel is good for me? But most importantly, do you have a living relationship with the most high God? Do you have a testimony 
of the blood of Jesus that sprinkled your heart and, and your spirit being born again. Because else you've got no grounds of standing in the presence of God. Tonight, Abram said, let's go back to the day of our salvation, of the joy of our salvation. Uh, the, this afternoon, the Holy Spirit also said to me, uh, he reminded me of my day of salvation. And tonight I realized I can only stand here with such a joy in my heart because I am saved, because I know I'm saved. But some of you tonight are not 100% sure whether you are saved. And I want to appeal to your heart first of all. Maybe you, you, you've seen enough. Maybe you saw the testimony in your friend's life and you say, I want that. I want something. Maybe tonight you experience something. You say, I want that. I want God. I want the presence of God. But I'm not in the right relationship with God. So first of all, I want to ask you, if that's you tonight, you realize that you are not saved yet. But you desire God. And you are ready to surrender to your life to Jesus. Will you be brave enough to stand on your feet while everybody else's eyes are closed? I would like to give you an opportunity to surrender your life to Jesus. Okay? So I'm assuming everybody else sitting has got a living relationship with God. So then I want to ask you, do you realize if you see tonight that like David, with sincerity, you might be sincerely wrong in the way that you see worship, in the way that worship is expressed in your life. And you want to make it right with God tonight. Won't you just raise your hand? Thank you. Lord, I want to pray for every person that's been brave enough to raise their hand, acknowledging that there's been a lot of assumptions, a lot of ignorance, And Lord, then the best we can get is destruction. We don't experience the fullness of your joy when we are ignorant. So I pray now, Holy Spirit, that you will lead us in the next couple of weeks to go deeper into your word, Lord, to have a revelation and a conviction of, of your holiness. But I pray, Lord, that the gospel message will really penetrate our hearts and that you will uh, enlighten us with the beautiful privilege that we have to be in your presence as sons and daughters. In Jesus' name. Amen. So family, I want to practically uh, challenge us. Tonight was just the introduction for the series. We're going to spend the next five to six weeks really engaging with this whole topic of undignified worship. But I want to challenge you. Are you ready to commit to studying scripture for yourself? Or you're going to wait for next week's Sunday and see who presents what? Or maybe go back to the book of 2 Samuel. Do a study on the life of David. Choose some psalms. I can't say that word right. The Psalms, okay? <laughs> some psalms, okay? And and ask the Holy Spirit to give you a deeper revelation of how should worship and praise look like in your life. Secondly, I want to challenge you. Are you ready to cultivate a lifestyle of worship? Nice words, eh? Lifestyle of worship. What I mean by that is, are you willing to extend your worship beyond a Sunday evening service? 
are you ready to express praise while you walk on campus between classes? Maybe at home, maybe someone was sick and suddenly they healed and you praise God. Can we become free to praise God in all circumstances, in all spaces of our life, every day of our life, and especially in all circumstances? Can you commit, like David, to praise God with the same passion and conviction, first time, second time, third time, doesn't matter whether there's success or failure. Even if you've been trusting God for something in your life for the last five years and it doesn't seem to be working, can you still praise God with the same conviction? And then lastly, can I encourage us to enjoy a living relationship with the most holy God through the grace of the blood of Jesus? Are you up for the challenge? Amen. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.